two this morning. And I'll be reading the entire chapter. We're going to be focusing on the last few verses. Give me a moment to find Galatians 2. Galatians, the second chapter, if you would look in your Bible as uh, I read it aloud, the word of the Lord. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection? No, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me, God accepts no man's person, for they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me, but contrariwise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectively in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision." And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might be live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. There's a lot to this. A lot of it is somewhat obscure. You have to study it, know what he's talking about. Very briefly, he says... Uh, uh, he talks about the uh, he met the other apostles. Remember, Paul was, a lot of them thought, you know, this guy's not really an apostle. He wasn't walking with Jesus. He was an enemy of Jesus when Jesus walked on earth. And he says that Jesus came to him in a vision and appointed him as an apostle. Well, we don't know about that. Maybe he's a spy for the Jews. That's what a lot of them thought. 
So he had to justify it. Paul always said, I'm an apostle. He began every one of his letters just like this one, Paul, an apostle. He said, I'm a, I'm a real apostle, guys. And he's, he talks about being with Peter and John and uh, James and, and all, and uh, uh, all the apostles in Jerusalem. And uh, he said, uh, it doesn't matter to me that they were big deals in the church because God doesn't respect a person, any persons. It's important. He, you know, he wasn't putting them down, but he was saying, you know, they're not greater than I am. We're all apostles together. Uh, and then he talks a, a situation where even the great Peter, uh, when he was, he was eat with the Gentiles, he wouldn't obey the dietary laws, but when the Jews came in, and these are called Judaizers, they were, they, they were, they said they were Christians, you had to believe in Christ, but you also had to follow the, the dietary laws and, and, and that and some of the other laws. And so Peter then, he didn't want to be embarrassed, so he would go and pretend that he believed in the dietary laws when they came. And so Paul said, hey, you're a hypocrite, right in front of everybody else. He said, you're a hypocrite. Um, so what I'm focusing on today is uh, beginning in verse 20. We've looked at this a couple of weeks ago. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. What we're dealing with here is really Paul's autobiography, if you want to put it that way. Now, note that there's, he has four distinct statements in the first half of of verse 20, uh, and they stand alone. So that's why I say it's an autobiography. First thing he says is, I'm crucified with Christ. Second is, nevertheless, I live. Then he says, yet not I. And then he says, but Christ lives in me. And last week I asked you, or not last week, a couple weeks ago I asked you a simple question. It sounded simple, are you dead or alive? Remember I asked that question? Are you dead or alive? And we decided the answer to the question depends on what is meant by the word dead or alive, God uses them in, in two different ways in the Bible, at least two different ways. Sometimes he means, you know, physically dead or alive, like what we think of as dead, you know, somebody in a cemetery. Uh, but sometimes he means spiritually dead or alive. You can still be walking around and breathing and not in a cemetery, but you can be spiritually dead. Uh, that really means you're separated from God. A person can be physically alive, walking, talking, thinking, but his spirit can be dead, separated from God. He has no regard for God. He's not interested in church. He's not interested in the Bible. He's only interested in himself, really, what, what pleases himself. Well, that's that's the definition of a spiritually dead person. Well, let's, this time I'd like to apply that to verse 20, I live, yet not I. Uh, is Paul saying he's dead? Obviously he's not. He's writing. He's thinking. He's not physically dead. Uh, is he talking spiritually or is it something else? Uh, his words are, it is no longer I who live. He says, someone lives, but it's not the old Paul. His body's still alive, but the person that Paul was is no longer living in his body. He says, he says I no longer live, yet not, yes, yes, I live, but I don't live. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the person I was is no longer that person. Are you the same person that you were when you were five years old? Well, yeah, physically you've gotten bigger, you're the same person in one sense, but you're certainly not the same person in another sense, at least I hope not. 
you've matured, you're a changed person. Well, that's sort of what Paul is saying, although much deeper than that. Uh, Paul says, I'm a new creature. Later in, the, in this letter to the Galatians, Paul says, uh, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything, in other words, being a Jew, nor uncircumcision, that is, not being a Jew, a Gentile, but a new creature. So he's saying it doesn't matter to God if you're a Jew by your race or ethnicity or however you want to define Judaism, your beliefs, uh, or not, but what hap- what what's important is a new creature, that you're a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he writes, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, it's easy for us to kind of gloss over those words. I mean, we've read them before. We don't real, really stop to think about them. Why is that? Well, advertising a lot. Advertising has hijacked a lot of words like that. Uh, we're, we're used to hearing about gimmicks and products that are going to change your life, um, make you a new person, uh, you know, we become hardened to hearing advertising phrases like that. So when Paul says something like what these ad pitchmen are saying, we tend to lump it in the same category. Not that we're conscious of doing it, but being exposed to phrases in everyday advertising produces a a numbness of mind when we hear them. Our brain says, yeah, I've, I've heard about that before. And that can carry over into our reading of God's word. But unlike the ad pitchman, what Paul is saying is real. He's reporting what's actually happened in his own life. It's not some pop psychology or a late-night infomercial. He's not saying, you know, I made a million dollars in one week using the God system, and you can too. Uh, He's not saying, well, I've found myself, I've gotten in touch with my feelings, I now have achieved self-esteem through the gospel. He's not saying that. That's all self-centered buzzwords of our culture. Um, It's a culture that worships the creature rather than the creator. Paul is saying the complete opposite. His old self is dead. He doesn't have self-esteem. He's saying my old self is dead. The complete opposite of the self-esteem teachings. He's saying another person has taken its place. Not in some dream world sense, but in actual concrete fact. Another person runs his life. Now the old self, what God in the Bible calls the old man, or old creature, is dead. He was in Christ and died on the cross. Your old nature was in Christ and died on the cross, even though it was 2,000 years ago. Because uh, the Bible says Christ uh, uh, died for uh, to save his people from their sins. And if we're his people, then he died to save us on the cross, even those 2,000 years before we were born. I mean, that's not impossible with God. He knew we were going to be born. He is, Paul says, I am in, in, in our verse, he says, crucified with Christ and the new man lives. In Colossians 3, he says, ye have put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So what does that mean, put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man? Well, a lot of people have tried to figure it out. And after applying their best brain power, this is their conclusion. 
Being a Christian makes you a better person. You'll be a better parent, you'll be a better husband or wife, a better child, a better employee, a better boss, a better citizen, and society will be better for that. Now, those are great things. Who doesn't want all that? But it's not the message of the Bible. It is the modern gospel, so-called. Accept Christ because that will make your life so much better. So you can, you can go to almost any church, and you'll often hear that, quote, gospel, believe in Jesus Christ because he'll make your life so much better. Look what he's done for me. You know, we'll get a famous athlete up here, and he'll talk about how God, you know, lets him score touchdowns. So you're going to hear that in a lot of places. Turn on TV, you're going to hear that. Your life will be just wonderful if you accept Jesus. You'll get blessings on earth and heaven too. You know, be, your life will be great on earth, and then you get heaven thrown in too. Wow, who wouldn't want that? Wouldn't that pack churches? I mean, doesn't that pack churches? Sure, people want to hear that, right? They don't want to hear about sin, and certainly don't want to hear about hell. They want to hear about, you know, the good stuff. Now, don't make a mistake. Christians, in general, make better husbands and wives, and children and employees and bosses and citizens. And I remember reading somebody once saying, uh, well, how do you explain that nasty old woman who goes to church and and appears to be a Christian, yet she's nasty? And somebody said, but she can imagine how how much more nasty she'd be if she weren't a Christian? (laughs) So... uh, but our country, it's true, would be immeasurably better off, the world would be immeasurably better off if most people lived by the Bible. But think about what that message is all about. Defining the gospel as, you know, God is this big uh, uh, dispenser of favors. That's what he lives for, is to do you favors. Um, did Jesus ever teach to trust in him as doing so, you'll be a better person? Think about that. Is that his message? Is that the foundation of the Christian message? No, think about what that appeals to. Is it not to your self-interest? Isn't that, in fact, a man-centered gospel? Is the gospel of Christ centered on man or on Christ? Well, you know the answer. Christ is all in all. We're dead in our trespasses and our sins, Scripture says. The man-centered gospel really is no gospel at all. I'm not saying you won't have a better life, you won't be happier as a Christian. You may be, but that's not the point of the gospel. It's a, that's a glossed-over, gussied-up gospel trying to appeal to our self-interests, our inward desires. And it's so easy to preach a gospel like that, and it grows churches, you know, get a band, heavy on the drums, get a stage with flashing colored lights, get a full color screens with lots of clouds, you know, make sure there are plenty of clouds floating around, that's always a good thing. Um, make sure you turn up the reverb knob on the amplifier, you know, especially for the preacher, so you can kind of sound like God himself. Preach about the wonderful things that are going to happen to people if they just reach out and grab Jesus' hand. The Jesus that's 
crying and whining and on his knees begging you to accept him. Uh, make a decision for him. Uh, you, you could make a great living preaching that kind of gospel. A lot of people do. Uh, you might get your own show on cable TV. But God doesn't tolerate the twisting of his gospel. See, the true gospel has no attraction to the natural, what we call the natural man, the unsaved man. Only by God putting his spirit in you, first of all, makes the gospel attractive to you, if you will. The only man who finds the true gospel attractive is the man who is convicted of his sin. You can't start with, oh, this is going to make your life so much better if you just make a decision for Christ. Because then people will say, oh, well, I want to make my life better. I'll focus it on me. That's not the approach. The approach is the only way they're going to hear the real gospel and believe the real gospel is if they're convicted of their sin. So it's first preaching conviction of sin, understanding what sin is, understanding how we have offended God, how we've broken his laws, and how there's the only hope is Jesus Christ. See, the true gospel is radical. It cuts to the bone. It says that receiving Christ, not accepting him, by the way. The word is receiving. Accepting is man-centered. Accepting is something that I do. Receiving is passive. It's something God does. God-centered. Just like dead and rotting Lazarus in the, in the grave, he couldn't do anything to hear Jesus' voice. Jesus had to give him ears to hear to hear him calling. Well, that's a picture of us as sinners. Jesus has to give us ears to hear to be able to understand the gospel. Scripture says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Your friends who just laugh at you for being a Christian, the Bible says that's not to, that's to be expected because the gospel is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing. It's foolishness to them. They don't understand it. They think it's a bunch of fairy stories. Uh, they think it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, because they're perishing. They can't hear it. They can't understand it. God is blinded their minds. See, you receive Christ. It makes you another person. See, it re- Just because it happens to you in your spirit doesn't make it untrue, by the way. Don't make the mistake of thinking that only what you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands is true. Nobody really believes that. I mean, if you think the only thing you can believe in is what you can touch with your hands or see with your eyes, then do you believe in China? Does China exist? Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen it? Most of you haven't. Do you believe it exists? Well, I would imagine you do. Uh, Do you believe that Abraham Lincoln was a real person? Why? Did you ever meet him? Why do you believe that? You didn't see him with your eyes or anything, but you believe. We all believe things that we we can't see or touch. Um, So, just because it happens to you in your spirit doesn't make it untrue. Um, Christ's spirit, which is Christ himself, literally, really, factually enters into you. It's a literal fact. God says so in his word. So receiving Christ exactly what the world's word says it is, you receive him, his spirit comes in, takes up residence in you. Literally. Now, over and over again, the scriptures speak of believers being in Christ. For example, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, 
the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans 12. So we being many are one body in Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And many, many more. Receiving Christ, if you don't remember anything else from this sermon, remember this. Receiving Christ doesn't make you a better person. It makes you another person. It makes you another person. Romans 8, 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. See, if the spirit of God lives within you, then no other spirit can live in you. The spirit of God doesn't tolerate another spirit. You know, it's, it's been said you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. One or the other. Nobody is free and not a slave to anything. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. God demands 100%. 2 Corinthians 6, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, the Lord used, uh, Jesus Christ used the analogy of a vine and its branches. Remember that? Uh, in John 15, he said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abides or lives in me and I in him the same brings forth much fruit. But then he goes on to say, for without me you can do nothing. Without me you can do nothing. You can do nothing for God. You can do nothing of any lasting importance for, uh, really for the kingdom of God without Christ. Now do you see anything here about the branches imitating the vine? Did he say, I'm the vine, you're the branches? And if you imitate me, etc., what you see is the dependence of the branches on the vine for bringing forth fruit, for doing anything, for, for living. If you cut off a branch from a vine, how long is that branch going to live? Not very long. Branches are depending on the vine. The vine delivers nourishment to the branches. We're the branches, and we're dead spiritually if we're separated from Christ, who is the vine. And the definition of spiritual death is to be separated from Christ, from God. So the Christian life is not just your old life with a new paint job. The Lord doesn't give you the power to imitate him. He gives you himself. Let's look at Colossians 3, please. Colossians chapter 3 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, who is our life, shall appear, then ye shall ye also appear with him in glory. And then it goes on, of course, but that was the key uh, in verse... Uh, 10 or verse 9 last part of verse 9 ye have put off the old man that's the old nature with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him it goes on you put off the old man with his deeds God's word often uses this illustration of taking off and putting on to make us understand what a great change that salvation makes in it sometimes he uses talks about it in clothing. Uh, it talks about filthy garments uh, in the Bible. 
uh, as, as our sin as our, our sin nature and says take off those filthy garments in Zechariah 3 uh, it says Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and the angel said take away the filthy garments from him and uh, God says behold I have caused your iniquity to pass from you and I will clothe you with a change of raiment and there are other in Revelation the same things Jesus talks about garments and uh, talking about the church of Sardis there are those who have not defiled their garments. So sometimes the Lord uses this language of putting off the old man uh, to put on the new person as garments. Uh, the, the Lord, of course, discards your old self and puts on the new person. Uh, Paul says, I'm still alive in our passage in Galatians, but in my outward appearance nothing has changed. But if you could look inside my heart, you would see it's no longer that I am doing the living in my body, but Christ is living in me. I live in the flesh, but I don't live in the ways of the flesh. The self-righteousness, self-centered Saul that I used to be, which was his name until God changed it, is dead. It's important back in those times, your name meant something. You know, Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham. Sarah's name was changed from Sarai to Sarah. Etc. And they all had meanings. There are many examples in the Bible of people's names being changed to denote uh, their new life, for example, when, when God saved them, that kind of thing. So Paul's crucifixion with Christ spiritually ended Paul's enthronement of himself. He yielded, or his throne of his life was yielded to Christ. It's not something Paul did with his own power. We're all too weak to dethrone ourselves from the rule of our own lives. We're all too weak to dethrone ourselves. We don't want to get off that throne. Only God has to come in and take us off the throne. So Christ removes our self-centered pride from the throne of our life. He takes the throne to himself. In Colossians 1, uh, beginning in verse 26, Paul explains Christ kicks us off the throne of our lives, takes it for himself. He compares it to the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints, which is, and he goes on to say, what, what is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not living a moral life, the hope of glory. Okay? Not doing good works, the hope of glory. Not even trying to be Christ-like, the hope of glory, but Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, how does that happen? It's all the work of God, nothing of ours. We can pray for it. We can ask the Lord for it, and he will graciously give it to us. He says, I will, uh, those who seek me with all their heart will find me. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, the new creation is as much and entirely the work of God as the old creation. You know, were you, did you decide to be born physically? Did you decide who your parents would be and where would you be born and what year you'd be born in what century? No. In what country? Of course not. The same with your spiritual birth, your rebirth, your being born again. You don't decide it. God decides it, just like he decided your physical birth. So it's as much as the new creation, the new birth, is as much entirely the work of God as the old birth. The idea that the Christian life is not the old life made better, not you trying not to sin, but a new life altogether because Christ is living in you is so very important for us to understand 
that the Lord in his word says it over and over and over and over again. Because he knows we have a very short attention span. And we gloss over things and we miss things in the Bible all the time. So he repeats things. Uh, So whenever the Lord repeats something in the Bible, we ought to get our antennae going up. He's saying, pay attention now. Pay attention. This is very important now. So... He uses, as I said, filthy clothing and, and our heart of stone replaced it with a heart of flesh and put off the old man and putting on a new self. He keeps repeating it in different ways so one of them might penetrate our little peanut brains. Um, you know, remember when Jesus told Nicodemus, who was a big deal in Israel, a Jew, a, Jew, a very faithful, religious Jew, very highly respected, very moral man, did all sorts of good deeds. He told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So what he was saying is the old life can't be remodeled because there's nothing good in the flesh uh, on which to build. You don't build a, a, a mansion on a rotten foundation, which is what we try to do if we try to do it on our own. No, he's saying you need an entirely new life, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. So we should have a new way of life. Paul says in Galatians 5, if we live in the Spirit, we should be walking in the Spirit. We should live it out in our lives in the Spirit. Uh, Meanwhile, the flesh with our passions and desires is dead. It still gets to us. It still tempts us. It still whispers in our ear, you know, hey, don't don't you miss all those good times? Come on. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt. Uh, so we fall, and then we pray to God, and we ask Him for strength not to fall again. Uh, the sins of the flesh are defeated. We succumb to them on occasion, but the true Christian should find the siren calls of temptation getting fainter and fainter. They never go away. But every every. New Year's, I look at my life and say, you know, where am I in my spiritual walk compared to a year ago? You know, am I maybe, my temptations, is a siren call of temptations a little fainter? Am I doing a little better? I hope so. That should be sanctification. Not that you'll ever be perfect on this life. Uh, But take a little spiritual temperature every once in a while. Uh, See, because sin doesn't have a death grip over you anymore. You don't have to obey it. More and more, you realize you can choose not to fall into temptation. Uh, sin doesn't have the power over you that it once had. And when you feel temptation, that's when you should be praying. That's a call to prayer. Think of temptation as a call to prayer. Resist the devil, Scripture says, and he will flee from you. So we live in a new realm where Christ reigns over us by his spirit. So we should live according to the spirit and not the flesh. Now, when Christ comes to live in you, he doesn't extinguish your personality. It's not like you become a just an automaton and some, you know, jerk. <laughs> uh, he makes your personality blossom to its fullest. A vine is not a branch. A branch is not a vine. Yet at some point they merge. There's a part that is both at the same time. So it's in, your individuality is merged in the one vine of which it is a member believer in Christ uh, Christ says uh, excuse me uh, well Christ also but John wrote down 
in John in First John four, he wrote, "The believer dwells in God, and God in him." And Jesus said the same thing. We're all one. So at some point, the branch and the vine are indistinguishable, where they join together. Not that we're God. I'm not teaching that, obviously. But there is a sense in which uh, there there is a our individuality is merged in Christ, and that's a mystery. Uh, we dwell in God, God in, in us, in, in 1 John 4. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ. And Luke, uh, Luke says the same thing in Acts 17, in him we live and breathe, excuse me, we live and move and have our being or our existence. We live in Christ and he lives in us. It's a mystery, but it's also the truth. Lorraine Bettner, the author Lorraine Bettner, in his book Studies in Theology, explained it this way. He said, The mystic which exists between Christ and believers is a guarantee that they shall continue steadfast. Because I live, ye shall live also, John 14, 19. The effect of this union is that believers participate in his life, Christ in us, Romans 8, 10. It is not we that live, but Christ that lives in us, Galatians 2.20, continuing with Lorraine Bettner's quote, Christ and the believers have a common life such as that which exists in the vine and the branches. The Holy Spirit so dwells in the redeemed that every Christian is supplied with an inexhaustible reservoir of strength. In Romans 8, it says, the life you receive by faith, you also live by faith. When a believer trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation, he receives Christ's victory over sin and death. That's so important, I want to repeat it. Romans 8, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. When a believer trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation, he receives Jesus' victory over sin and over death. That's why death shouldn't we don't grieve, Scripture says, like unbelievers do when someone dies, especially if they're a believer. We know we'll be with them quite soon. The older you get to realize how fast life, life, this life goes. So we realize that they died in Christ, we'll be with them. And if they didn't, we grieve for them. When you know that the Spirit of God lives in you, your life is a new life. Paul said, I'm crucified. Nevertheless, I live. To be crucified is to die. So whatever life a crucified person has must be a new life. So it is with you if you're a believer. The death sentence has been pronounced on your old life. The carnal mind, which is enmity against God, is doomed to die. We wish it was completely dead, but it's not going to be until we uh, go to heaven. But your life in Christ is a new thing, as though you had actually died and lay rotting in the grave and then had started up at the sound of the trumpet to live again. That's what happened to Lazarus, you remember. It was a picture of every Christian, as I said. He rose and walked out of the tomb, the place of death, into new life. Everybody who trusts in Christ is a Lazarus. So don't expect the world to understand you. It didn't understand how Lazarus could be dead and then alive. And certainly the world didn't understand Jesus Christ. So remember, when your, your actions are misrepresented, people lie about you, when your motives are maligned, and twisted, when you're ridiculed, don't be surprised at that. 
Jesus said in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, if you were like other men and women, like other boys and girls, unbelievers, the world would understand you. They'd like you because you're like them. Enjoying the same things, talking the same way they do, having the same attitudes they have. But because you don't think like they do, because you don't act like they do, because you don't talk like they do, because you don't join with them in a lot of things they do, because you are in this world but not of it. Or as Dr. Greg Bonson once quipped, he said, Christians are literally from outer space. (laughs) So the world can't comprehend you. And they haven't a clue as to how you think or why you do what you do or why you say what you say. See, Jesus said in John 15 again, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you're in the best company possible. Is that a bunch of words to you? Do you know anything about that? Here's the test. Ask yourself, has your life been ruled by Christ in this past week? Have others seen our Lord Jesus in you this week? If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you ever see and know that within your soul Christ looks out through your eyes seeing poor sinners and moving you to help them? That Christ throbs in your heart feeling for the perishing, trembling for those who will not tremble for themselves? Do you ever feel Christ opening your hands to help those who can't help themselves? Have you ever felt that something more than yourself is in you? The spirit which sometimes struggles within you and struggles with your spirit and holds it by the throat and threatens to destroy its sinful selfishness? A a noble, a holy spirit which puts its, its foot on the neck of covetousness, of pride, a brave spirit that dashes to the ground your pride, an active, fervent spirit that burns up your laziness, your lack of energy. Have you ever felt that? Truly, those that live to God feel the life of God within, at least sometimes. And they desire to be more and more subdued under the dominant spirit of Christ. I'll conclude with some verses from 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Let's pray. Father, penetrate our hearts with these truths that uh, if we are believers in Christ, we are new creatures, and the old has passed away. We're not just imitating Christ, but Christ lives in us, and the life that we live in the flesh, we live 
that Christ living in us. That we are not our own, we are bought with a price. The price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross. That we have been bought. We are his own. That we are slaves to Christ. But more than that, he calls us his friends. And we are brothers in Christ, heirs, joint heirs with Christ, much more than slaves. And Father, we thank thee for the great blessing in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and ask that this truth would be made manifest in us all, that we would walk daily more and more as Christ living in us. Now be with us as we fellowship after this service. And, uh, Father, as we uh, be with our families this Lord's Day, remember this is not called Man's Day. Six days, Scripture says, Shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath unto the Lord. And it's called the Lord's Day. So let's remember to honor it as such, Father. And uh, Let us put away our worldly thoughts and uh, activities and uh, focus on thee today and our conversation may be focused on thee even more than it, than it is perhaps during the week. Father, we ask our, uh, thy blessings upon our family devotions. Let us not neglect the study of thy word this week. Uh, let us uh, bless our families that we would bring up our children in the way they should go. For when they are old, they shall not depart from it, which is a promise of scripture, Father, and we cling to that. Father, uh, give us patience with the children. And children, that they would, Father, we ask that they would obey their parents and honor them and love them. In Jesus' name we pray.